From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Jeff Hughes, and I'm a fire captain currently assigned to risk management as the Cancer Awareness and Prevention Captain. I'm going to be your host for this podcast, actually for this six-part series on our podcast. We're doing something a little different than normal. On October 24th and 25th, the OCFA hosted a behavioral health conference titled Past, Present, and Future. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentations in our show notes of each podcast episode as well as on Vimeo on the OCFA page. This is the third podcast in our six-part series and features Parkland Shooting Incident Commander and Coral Springs Division Chief Mike Moser. Here's Mike. Certainly the next uh, group of speakers that we have, uh, their story really represents the present of the entire uh, the program that we've set up from past, present, and future. Uh, this is the present because Coral Springs in Parkland, Florida, South Florida, they have a first-rate firefighter safety and health program already established. One of the speakers here, Captain Bader, is the founder of the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative, a very proactive program that works with the entire state for firefighter safety and health initiatives. Um, so when you look at <clears throat> a department that's already kind of identified either the, whether you're talking about the cancer awareness and prevention piece or the behavioral health, you know that the issue's already been talked about and there's already been forward movement to try to deal with this thing. Well, <clears throat> 245, 2.40 Eastern Standard Time, February 14, 2018, a mass shooting occurred at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. 17 people were tragically killed and 15 more hospitalized, making it amongst one of the most deadly school shootings in modern U.S. history. The Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School incident represents the present, the present in this conference. Please welcome, we have the incident commander uh, from the Stoneman Douglas incident in Coral, Sp Coral Springs, Parkland, Florida, Division Chief Mike Moser. Uh, again, I'm uh, Division Chief Mike Moser. I've been with the Coral Springs Parkland Fire Department for 18 years. And uh, as Jeff mentioned, on February 14th, we got the call that nobody expected to ever get. Uh, there was no strange hair on the back of our neck that day like there was for some others. It was a random day. It was a regular day. The weather was nice. There was no indication that anything was going to go awry that day. So there are two parts to our presentation. The first part, I'm going to be doing a very detailed operational overview of the incident. I know we're focusing a lot on behavioral health um, but Jeff thought it would be a good idea to talk about the incident a little bit 
prior to that. So we, we hope that uh, you guys are okay with that. This is a standard presentation that we give to a lot of different places. So if I skip over some stuff, it's because I don't want to take away from Captain Bader's uh, information that he's going to talk about with the mental wellness component. Hello, we're at Summit Douglas High School, and I think there's Hello? Please. So that's the first 911 call received that day. You could hear the gunshots in the back from, we won't mention his name at all during this presentation. There's some choice names that we call him, but we won't mention his actual name here. Um, and that's how our day started. It started with a very active and scary 911 call. We don't know who that caller was, and we don't even know if she's alive, because after those gunshots were heard, we couldn't talk to her anymore, and we are unable to find out if, uh, what her situation is after that. This was a nationwide event. This obviously occurred in our backyard, uh, but this event was, again, the third deadliest school shooting in our nation's history. So it spawned a lot of events after the fact as well, and we're going to try to talk about as much of those as we can. Brief understanding about our city. This is uh, Broward County. This is a map of Broward County. In Broward County is cities like Fort Lauderdale, so we're, we're kind of a beach community. Coral Springs and Parkland is on the northwestern part of Broward County. And just for reference, the city of Parkland contracts its fire and EMS services to the city of Coral Springs, so we are their provider. Our trucks, our shirts, our business cards say Coral Springs Parkland Fire Department. We have been a very close-knit with them for many years. We didn't want to just have them as a customer. We wanted them to be part of our department, so we rebranded many years ago to make sure that they felt as if we were all one department. Between the two cities, about 160,000 residents, 43 square miles. In our neck of the woods, that's a moderate size city or combination of cities. We began doing their services in 1996 with EMS, and then they had a public safety department that they disbanded in the middle of our EMS contract, and we provided fire services for them as well, including community risk reduction training and those sorts of things. Standard mission statement. I'm not going to bore you guys with this. Our department's not that old. You could see the first bullet we established in 1970 as a volunteer fire department. Our city was only established in 63, so... Um, we're, we're a fairly young department, especially um, as the nation's concerned. Our department is very proactive. Very, we, we like to be on the forward cusp of things. We're not, we're not very status quo. We like doing new programs. We like being innovative, and we like doing things that nobody else is doing, which you'll hear about our mental wellness program here shortly. Um, a lot of state awards, EMS Provider of the Year. We have a Training Center of the Year for the state of Florida. We've won that four or five times. We just we, we don't... We don't accept mediocre activities in our department. We're very forward thinking. The reason I bring that up is because we have a certain type of people that work at our department. We, we have actually had employees just recently quit because they said, you guys are too much for me. We're not interested in being this forward looking. I want to go work somewhere where I just run calls and go home. We run just over 15, a couple years we've done 17,000 calls a year. So compared to what some of you are running, that's not that busy. For us with eight stations, um, it's, it's moderate for us.
just a little bit of makeup of our department, uh, probably the number that you're most concerned with or, or maybe can understand the size of our department is we have 150 shift personnel. We have three shifts, we work 24, 48s, and these are some of the additional staff members that we have. Community paramedic program, mobile integrated healthcare program that's currently on hold, but we hope to get that back up again soon. Again, try to do some forward thinking things within our organization. We have five stations in the city of Coral Springs and three in Parkland. Our CERT team was integral on February 14th because they came out and did a lot of great work for us and for the community. Again, we try to be involved in a lot of stuff. We have a lot of guys on USAR, our DMAT team, SWAT medics. They are sworn fire, but not sworn law enforcement. The, um, they're looking to do a, I guess in California, you guys have a peace officer certification designation, looking to do that in Florida with these gentlemen with the uh, auxiliary law enforcement so they can carry. So let's talk about the city of Parkland. Voted the 15th safest city in the entire nation. When we took away all the other cities that were above them, they became the third safest city in Florida. And then this happens. So the point is it can happen anywhere is an understatement because, again, knowing what Parkland is and what kind of city it is, this was the last place we thought it would happen. The city of Parkland contracts their law enforcement services to the Broward Sheriff's Office. The, they park, uh, contract their fire and EMS services to us. We have always had a great working relationship with the Broward Sheriff's Office. I bring this up because if any of you followed this incident right after it happened, I'm sure you heard a lot of wonderful things about who didn't do what, who didn't go in, who argued with who afterwards, all the politics, communications, radio system failures, and a number of things that came up after the incident. We bring this up because the, the boots on the ground that work together every day don't have those problems. The city of Parkland's bedroom community average household uh, is about $700,000. I don't know what that is in California standards, but in South Florida standards, that's like a multi-million dollar house. $700,000 in South Florida is a, is a very high number. So Parkland is a middle upper, more upper class city. Talk a little bit about our communication system because this was um, so well discussed after the incident. The county has three separate public safety answering points where they answer police and fire rescue calls. The city of Coral Springs is one of only two cities in the entire county that does not participate in that regional program. You're probably seeing where this is going and how that could be an issue after the fact. It actually was a, an extreme benefit on that day because of the resilience of our independent system. But we still got a lot of flack for it because we have disparate CAD systems and we have different radio systems, so that came into play. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. The 911 calls in Parkland, if you call from a cell phone, that 911 call rings into the Coral Springs public safety answering point because 70 to 80% of the calls that come in from cell phones in that community are fire or EMS based. So we took those stats and we routed those calls to us. If you make a landline call in the city of Parkland, it goes to the Broward Sheriff's Office PSAP many miles away. Again, strange concept, but on this day worked out because of the ability to have those calls going to both places at the same time. Our city has been working on this active killer policy and training since 2012. We were fortunate enough, and we're going to talk about not just with the active killer things that we do, but our peer support and mental wellness programs, that a lot of these things were in place way before this event. We're very lucky. 
if these things weren't in place before February 14th, I think the outcome would have been much worse than it was. Our police department and fire department drilled an active killer response training for quite some time and actually drilled on it. Went to our fire academy, got our students, EMT, paramedic, and fire students, um, moulaged them all up, brought a guy in there with a shotgun with blanks in it and started shooting up the place and had our response police, fire, and EMS responses go to the school and do this very realistic training. In early 2017, we took this active killer training and this Stop the Bleed campaign, which I'm sure you've heard about, and we trained every one of our city employees in Coral Springs and most in Parkland. Um, that number is a little bit low. We have about 900-something municipal employees within the city of Coral Springs. And we trained them all on this exact situation or scenario so that if it happened at a public facility, they would be prepared. Any of this information that I'm going to share with you today, we're, we, we want you to steal it. I'm going to give you a website at the end of this presentation. It's going to give you a lot of great training materials that, that we want you guys to have. The whole point of this presentation is for not if, but when this happens possibly in your community that you are prepared for it the best that you can be. We're working with the schools in our jurisdiction to the Stop the Bleed campaign. Again, this started prior to February 14th. We're not done with it. We obviously are continuing to do it, even with more emphasis now because it has struck our community. The City of Coral Springs and the City of Parkland have just prior to and especially after February 14th passed an ordinance anywhere that there's an AED in our community, a Stop the Bleed kit is required to be with it and they will be cited and fined if they don't have it. Our AED requirements are fairly strict from what I understand from some, some of the other agencies that are around us. Any, any public occupancy or any building, private or otherwise, that has a certain amount of occupancy must have the AED and now must have the Stop the Bleed kit. Our police officers had Stop the Bleed kits in their cars and on their persons. All of our public safety, especially police officers in our area, all have tourniquets and Stop the Bleed kits. Our SWAT team members and SWAT medics carry Stop the Bleed kits as well as additional uh, hemostatic agents and other type of agents with them at all times. All of our apparatus have Stop the Bleed kits on them and not the standard one that you can buy from. Uh, we buy our public kits from North American Rescue. Uh, they have a very good standard. I'm not on their payroll or anything. We just happen to get a really good kit from them. Uh, the ones that we have on our trucks and uh, that our personnel carry are our own kits that have additional equipment inside of them. Our dispatchers were trained on active shooter and active killer responses, also very important. For those of you that run dispatch centers, there's obviously standard uh, emergency medical dispatch protocols. Um, the ones that we use and actually a lot of agencies across the country use are not very specific when it comes to this type of incident. There is some traumatic injury and traumatic event cards in the, in the protocols, but they weren't very specific to this type of event. Now they are. In 2015, our department set out to do this kind of generalized health committee. Uh, within that committee, we wanted to deal with a lot of different things, cancer prevention, physical fitness, mental health, a lot of different components. Little did we know that this groundwork that was being set in 2015, for no reason, other than the fact that Captain Bader and some of the other people in our organization supported by our chief thought it was a good idea. This program paid dividends for us, hands down, because we had it in place. I'm thankful we had it in place. I benefited from having these programs in place. In 2016, we had a firefighter that was diagnosed with stage four cancer. We knew what the outcome of that was going to be. Again, little did we know that the 
health and safety committee that was established and gaining a lot of momentum in our department and other departments around us was going to also benefit us and our members when our member passed away very shortly after his diagnosis because we had a mechanism and a foundation in place to deal with this uh, to help our members out. We talked about this a little bit earlier in 2017. Uh, the Florida Firefighter Safety and Health Collaborative was established. Actually, prior to that, uh, we really got heavily involved in that and started to bring in the mental health clinicians. Um, Captain Bader is going to talk a lot about this uh, during his presentation, but what they have done with this program is not just bring these folks in and vet them and, and let's just get them out there on the street. The amount of involvement and training and experiences that they require that they go through have been very beneficial for our organization. What we're doing today, not just for active killer response, but for, for behavioral health and wellness, we have to get better. We have to take what we've learned, what we're learning here today, and do even better. I think we're doing an amazing job so far, but do even better because look at what's happening here. In 2017, there was 729 as opposed to seven in 2000. I'm not really good at math, but it's probably a really high percentage increase. Some active shooter statistics that I think are pretty important, um, not, not a majority of them happen in school facilities like we think. Uh, this does show that a pretty decent percentage of them do occur in educational facilities, but a lot of them occur in commerce or business. Most of them are uh, disgruntled employees. Government's pretty high on the list, open space, parks, things like that. This school is in the city of Parkland, but it sits on the border of Coral Springs. 45% of the students that go to Douglas High School are Coral Springs residents. For your purpose, it doesn't really matter much, but when we give this presentation to city governments and stuff, they wonder why there's such an emphasis on helping not just the Parkland community, but the surrounding communities, because Parkland wasn't the only one affected by this, the city of Parkland. There's also the city of Coral Springs and some other neighboring cities. Douglas has about 3,200 students. That's their average. Um, when we say enrolled at the time of the incident, that, that wasn't attendance for the day. That was a, the amount of uh, students that are enrolled there. The 1200 building where the shooting took place, and we're going to show you that in a map in a second, has about 30 classrooms, about 900 students. We believe there was eight something there that day. They have 17 buildings on campus. This is important to know. You'll see an aerial shot here in a second. From an operational standpoint, I was the incident commander. Don't drive fast to incidents because you too could get there first and be incident command. Um, we, you know, Knowing where your buildings are and how your buildings are laid out and all those types of things is very important because there's mistakes that were made um, and, and, and we're going to talk about that. Um, the time of this incident was during school dismissal or right before. There was probably no cars on the road there, right? Parents picking up their kids. It was a nightmare for us to get in and out of there. What we do know is that the shooter was dropped off at about 219 in front of the high school. He took an Uber and he brought a backpack. Inside of the backpack was his AR-15 that was broken down and lots and lots of ammunition. According to the timeline from the sheriff's office, um, this gentleman walked into the school and was pretty shortly after spotted by a school security officer who got on the radio, on the school radio, and told the school resource deputy uh, that this guy was there. They, know, they knew he wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't supposed to be at school. 221, shooter enters the east stairwell of the 1200 building. These times are kind of important too because I, I want you to realize how fast this incident unfolded. 221.33, less than, what, 20 seconds after he entered that building, he immediately began engaging bystanders, shooting them. The security team, including the school resource deputy, heard these shots right away. They believed 
just like anybody probably would have believed if they're at their normal day at work, that this wasn't gunshots, that this was fireworks. 222, a code red's issued by the school, in essence locking it down. A code red at our schools implements some security measures. Magnetic doors close, doors lock, certain exit and entries become limited. There's always a, round, a way around everything though. At 22238, the fire alarm was activated. We think we know by who, but when that fire alarm is activated, it bypasses those same security measures that the code red put into place. So not only did it bypass security measures that were put in place by the code red, but it also sets off the fire alarm. What do we do with every student in that school when the fire alarm goes off? They go outside, they evacuate. That's when he started picking people off. The crowd was brought to him. There was a lot of students shot in the hallway, but there was also a lot of students shot in the classroom. We believe still to this day that any student that was shot in the classroom was done through the window, that he never actually physically entered a classroom at all, that he still was able to kill 17 people and injure 19 more. This brings up interesting things. Our Fire Marshals Association for the state of Florida is now championing a cause to change the way we do fire alarms in school. This, how many were they, 17 buildings at Douglas? If there's a fire in one building, do we need 3,200 students out on the football field dying of heat on a normal day or being brought out for somebody to shoot them? So again, these types of incidents are changing the way that we're doing things, we're talking about maybe having just that building enunciate or maybe having a second layer in place for somebody to have to confirm that alarm before the, the evacuation's actually done. And we don't know, these are just thoughts. 2.22.40, we started getting 911 calls in our comm center. A lot of the 911 calls came from inside of the school, cellular phone calls from students and teachers inside the school. Less than a minute later, our units were already being dispatched on the radio. The school resource deputy gets on the radio and notifies his dispatch center uh, that there's an incident going on at the school. The dispatcher was, the, the sheriff's office dispatcher was actually giving out the call on the radio when the deputy got on the radio and, and um, interrupted her and said that there's an incident at the school. No, knowing right away one of his first transmissions uh, was that there was fireworks or shots fired at the school in the 1200 building. He knew that in his first transmission. Our normal response to a shooting, which is how this call came in, not an active shooter, but just a shooting incident because the dispatcher wanted to get that call on the computer right away. One ALS engine, one ALS rescue company, we call our ambulances rescues, and one shift supervisor. We have two shift supervisors per day. Once we got information that this was possibly an active shooter situation or that there was multiple patients involved, we added four ALS suppression companies, six additional ALS rescue companies, and what our agency likes to call the white wave. We, we cleared, the, cleared the offices out. Like I said, everybody, fire inspections, public education folks. I mean, we had little Ford escapes with their little lights on the roof going code three to the scene just to help out. When this was all said and done, this is the amount of units we had on top of our initial, or our second response, five additional suppression companies, pretty much litter bearers at that point, 19 additional rescue companies and five private, private ambulances from AMR, which runs uh, inner facilities and things like that in our area. They don't run 911 calls in Northwestern Broward. Our first dispatch, 142313, 2322 is when BSO was giving out this call on their radio. Again, we talked about at the beginning, we got, we got hit real hard with delays in response because of the differing communication centers, but you notice the times here are very close. They were getting calls at the same time we were getting calls. Because our 
police department in Coral Springs doesn't handle police response in the city of Parkland, our police officers were not notified right away. Looking back, maybe the dispatcher could have told the shift supervisor on the PD side, hey, just so you know, BSO Parkland's working this type of incident. But at the time, again, looking back, my opinion, I was a dispatcher for 10 years. I got to stick up for my peeps. I think they were really concentrating on getting the correct units there first. The Coral Springs Parkland Fire and EMS units and the Broward Sheriff's Office units first, and then getting on to notifying their officers in the city of Coral Springs. As with any call, we get there and we stage for law enforcement. Whether this is an active killer, whether you follow, follow PEMS, whether you follow any of these different programs out there, initial response prior to being cleared for any type of uh, active killer deployment, we were staging for uh, the police to let us know if it's clear to come in. At 2.29.05, I pull up, establish command. As you can see these times here, we are requesting command. We are requesting um, the sheriff's office to meet with us so we can get unified command established. That didn't happen until way long after the incident. And again, in lessons learned, we know that that's something that's important for us to have to do. From an operational standpoint, I'm lucky in my career. I've had a lot of MCIs. We, we have older communities. People like to drive through the post office and take off 15, 20 people at the counter. But at the same time, any one of you in this room can handle this call. And I'm going to tell you why. And I was I, I rode on a truck for 15 years. I don't forget where I came from. And I'm not going to sound like I drank the Kool-Aid either. Follow your training and follow your protocols. This call went as well as it did because we followed the rules and the processes that people way smarter than us set up decades ago. People ask me all the time, I listen to the radio tapes. You sounded so calm and you did so great. Okay. I took my little book out and I took notes and I had people help me and I established all these groups that we've been doing for years. Our department establishes command on every multi-company response no matter how stupid it is. We go on a commercial fire alarm at 2 o'clock in the morning and there's an engine, a rescue, a shift supervisor, and, an, and a ladder truck. The first arriving engine gets there. I don't care. We run that call 32 times that day. They establish command and they run through the process so that when this shit happens, you're ready to go. It's truly second nature. That's my words of wisdom for the day. That's all you're getting. 1200 building, guy's in there with a long rifle. He shot out the window on the third floor. We believe to set up a sniper perch. Had I known the 1200 building was where it was, maybe I would have made a different decision on where to go. Our computers in our trucks have pre-plans. Had we looked and not been running there like maniacs, we would have known that that was the 1200 building. That's where the shooting was taking place. Uh, could he have got us at 530 feet? Probably. Uh, I don't know how good of a shot he was. All of his shooting of people was done in very close range. But that decision was made at the time for the reasons that I stand by today, uh, and we were able to have very good uh, ingress and egress routes for our transport vehicles there. 235, first patients being brought to us. There was very odd, eerie silence when I get there. The radio's going with a lot of stuff, like, but I pull up and it's like tumbleweed blowing down the street. Ghost town. Nothing's going on. I mean, there's cops coming from all over the damn county there, but there's no patients. There's no parents jumping out of cars. There's none of that yet. Yet. Well, 235, again, we start, patients get brought to us by any means necessary. 
Uh, school staff is bringing patients to us in golf carts. Uh, students are bringing students out to us piggyback. Uh, police officers, SWAT medics were bringing patients out to us over and over and over again. And it seemed to never stop. And it was steady. Some of these patients were declared deceased as soon as they were brought to the treatment area because they had obvious injuries. And some that were brought to us under normal circumstances might not have been worked. But um, when you bring a kid to the treatment area and you're not 100% sure, you're working them. MCI protocol's out the window. MCI was declared early on in this incident to get those proper amount of units there. We didn't use tags. We didn't have time for that. We didn't use the MCI protocol that's nationally adapted because there wasn't time for that and it just didn't allow it. And again, I told you I'm very by the book and the process worked very well for the command structure, but there were some things that got thrown out the window that day and they worked. Very shortly after making entry, they find the shooter's backpack with all the ammunition in it. The security personnel were watching, very important, live video feeds from inside the school that were delayed about 20 minutes, found out after the fact. So they think this kid's inside shooting still, and he's not. Evidence points that this kid was gone within six minutes of his first shot. Killed 17 people, wounded 19 others, and was out of the school in less than six minutes, or around six minutes. Kind of important here, stick to your gut too. We were getting lots of reports that there was multiple patients located on a field, not close to where we had already set up our patient care area. Instead of picking up our treatment area and moving it there because it would have been helpful had all those patients actually been there, we sent a recon person. My fire chief pulled up and I said, go check that out. Um, and, and he did. And there was one patient there with a leg injury. At that point, I was on the radio saying there's a lot more patients at our treatment area now. So had we uprooted our system because somebody said, the cops, you know how the cops are, everybody's over here. Um, I think we would have... I think we would have been in a bad place. When we encountered the student on the field with a very nasty leg injury, um, he was instrumental. His name is Kyle, and he's an awesome kid. He's actually a fire explorer in one of our neighboring cities, and um, he's befriended us. Uh, he, he's a good kid. Um, was able to give a very detailed description of the shooter. Asked by our fire chief, not even the cop that was with him, because the cop was thinking outside the box and doing patient care at that point, um, and was able to give us some information as to there are bodies everywhere in the school. Good information for us to prepare what we had to do. You know, there was discussion that, guys understand perception is everything, right? Perception becomes reality a lot of times. We had crew members on scene saying, I was treating a patient there and there was no trucks around. There were trucks lined up, transport vehicles lined up out the wazoo. The personnel from those trucks were at the treatment area treating patients. There was also drivers there available to put them in trucks as needed. So um, I, think, I think some of the perception these guys, myself included, going through worst call ever on the planet, um, you kind of don't really understand what's going on. I listened to nine or radio tapes a few weeks after the event. I don't remember half of it. The shift battalion chief that day, pulled up. He was, again, he's a captain. He was just stepping up that day, acting as a battalion. Talk about blinders. This guy's daughter was in the school. 
Never mentioned a word to me. He did his job. Seemed a little flustered, but that's okay. We're on the biggest incident ever, uh, so that's okay. But his daughter was in the school at the time of this incident. His daughter's boyfriend was one of the 17 kids killed that day. So this really was, this really hit home for us as a community. Travel routes were announced on the radio early on. Again, just very basic follow the rules kind of stuff. Uh, they made fun of me a lot. Every time an engine or rescue pulled up that was not needed at transport, I told them on the radio every single time, I need your personnel at the command post, pull your vehicle off the road and leave a lane open. I must have said it 30 times because we've had calls where the trucks are all there or cops. I, I'm, a, I'm a half pig myself from back in my previous life, but cops park all over the goddamn place in front of our fire hydrants, in the middle of the street, um, and you'll see a picture here in a minute where that is all too obvious, but I wanted to make sure that those routes weren't blocked. We did get eventually unified command set up. The, the sheriff's office command bus was set up like an hour later. Um, and, and again, no disrespect to our law enforcement brothers and sisters. Who does incident command really, really good? Cops or firemen? That's just, that's what we learn. Um, to their credit, they did a great job after the fact and, and we helped them. There was a huge park just south of the school where we landed helicopters and staged rescues from all over the county. There was a lot of people there. We have two radio systems, the county radio system that a majority of the responders were on because they weren't our people. That system crashed and they weren't able to communicate. There was deputies in the school calling 911 on their cell phones to where, that call, where does that call go? Coral Springs Dispatch Center saying, I can't raise my dispatcher on the radio because the radio system's down of all the times for it to go down. It went down because of the volume on the system, but it didn't help much. Shooter was not confirmed in custody until 3.40, long time after the event started. So up until this point, we had heard yes, no, yes, no, maybe, maybe not. So that's why, and I'll make this very clear, when the news calls me and said, I'm also the PIO, when the news calls me and says a high-ranking fire official is reporting that they were not allowed to go into the school because the Briar Sheriff's Office refused to let them in, my response was, that is correct. And they were like, oh, biggest news story ever. That decision, regardless of the reason why it was made, I don't think it was made for the right reasons, but regardless of why, was the right de decision because in a rescue task force situation, that shooter has to be confirmed dead, confirmed in custody, or confirmed fled. Confirmed any one of those three. None of those three things happened. That's why our guys weren't sent in there. Our SWAT medics were sent in with the SWAT team because they're armed. The, the SWAT guys are armed. Um, but the rescue task force contingent was not sent in because we follow the rules. The last patient to come off scene was 91 minutes. That sounds like a really long time. Under the circumstances, I think it's fair. And that patient, um, that patient should have never been brought out. That patient was checked, we think, five or six times by SWAT medics and medics from other agencies and was declared deceased. The last guy or girl that went in there to check her thought they felt the pulse. They did not because we know her injuries would not have allowed that, but it doesn't matter. When they bring her out and they say, I think we felt the pulse, we worked her and transported her anyways. We realized early on that it's impossible and improper for us to think that any one person or group of people all need the same resources to help them during this difficult time. What may benefit one member or family may be inappropriate or not helpful to another. It's for this reason that we offered such a wide variety of services, not only for our members, but our members' families, friends, city officials, things like that. 
So this event was on February 14th, and it obviously took all day. This wasn't the end of the story for us because a lot of things happened after February 14th that continued to tax our resources logistically and personally. On my radio transmission, you hear me say, I need PD at the command post now. I have parents running by me, running in the front of the school. My kid was in there, you damn right I'd be doing the same thing too. We had to do family notifications of deceased children, something I never want to do. We had walkouts. We, have, we had students walking from other counties to Douglas High School to show their support of those students. Some of them were barefoot. We transported 20-something patients during one of these walkouts. We had MCIs on top of MCIs because of after-type events. So we had to be prepared for that. Rallies, vigils. Uh, I'm sure you saw on TV the March for Our Lives. We had, they expected 30 to 40,000 people to come to this March for Our Lives event. Thank God it was about 20 or a little bit less than 20. There was still a lot. We set up mobile field hospitals. We had doctors and nurses. Uh, we had everybody there, DMAT teams and everybody, to prepare for this because we know if we were taxed on a day where this shooting happened, what would it be like for an event that had 20-something thousand people at it? Press conferences, media inquiries, dignitary visits, the president, the governor, the chief financial officer, the sanitation director, anybody and their brother who's elected that wants to get their face in front of the camera wanted to come to Coral Springs and Parkland. Guess who had to deal with that? Us. We had to really prepare for this and it was very stressful for our members. Investigations and inquiry committees, the, the governor of the state of Florida established an, an, an investigative panel, gave them authority to um, take tape statements and to um, subpoena powers and all that other stuff. Well, the county hired a firm, the city hired a firm. Everybody, I've been depositioned, I can't tell you how many times, because of this. So this is a long-term event, and that's why the um, mental wellness is so important with this. Community forums, funerals. 45% of the students that were in this school live in Coral Springs. Where do you think these funerals took place? In our backyard. We had to be there for those, and we had to prepare for those. We had to take care of people that were having medical emergencies at those funerals. The city did a, a very beneficial thing. They had a first responder uh, day of healing where they, it was closed. No media was allowed. No public was allowed. It was first responders, police and fire and EMS, and families, victims, patients, teachers that were involved in the incident. We took over the park where we had the staging for the helicopters. We had that event there, and it was very beneficial. I mean, hugs and tears and everything that you can imagine, um, it was kind of some closure for some of our members, and it was very important to do that, and the city did a great job. So let's talk about some observations. While our incident command structure was established very early on and broadcast minutes of arrival, um, the request for law enforcement was made, should have been made more. If I make a request for PD to meet at our command post, because we set it up first, and we were there first, and we do command first, like we always do, um, if that request wasn't fulfilled in a certain amount of time, we probably should have asked again. We had a lot of stuff going on, but, you know, things that we should follow up with. Uh, we don't know if that message is even passed along. I requested on the radio several times, but our dispatch center and their dispatch center were very busy. Uh, we know that the sheriff's office on their radio, because we listened to it, if you go to YouTube, by the way, and, and look up Broward Sheriff's Office radio transmissions, Douglas High School, whatever, their entire radio transmission's on there. It's very interesting to listen to. You'll probably have anxiety to listen to it because it was a Charlie Foxtrot. Um, Unified Command Post was established after the fact, and uh, we did put a, a fire department representative there to have Unified Command. This is difficult for us. 
in Parkland, the Coral Springs Parkland Fire Department is the primary fire rescue EMS agency for that. We took ownership personally, not physically. This was a police event. This was a 17 count homicide event and 19 counts of attempted homicide. This was a sheriff's office event. But because we take ownership, because our trucks at Coral Springs and Parkland, because we're one with them, um, we really took a, a very heavy role in this. Um, we, we really need to, in the future, make sure that we co-locate command posts and have unified command set up under any circumstances. Some of those things were outside of our control. Dispatch stuff, everything was within guidelines. You know, again, I talked about how dispatch kind of got beat up a little bit for what happened, but um, the, the, everybody performed very well that day. Again, we talk about the RTFs not established because we didn't know where the suitor's location was. We had been told back and forth that he was in custody, but we couldn't confirm that until we actually did confirm that. Floor plans for the schools would have assisted. It didn't say we didn't have them. They were on our computers, but we just never accessed them because we were busy. What we should have done, we, we make fun of the white wave showing up. We should have asked everybody else's white wave from other departments to show up, and we could have had aides for our command staff positions to look up that kind of stuff. Have a planning person there. I know it sounds ridiculous, but anything necessary. I'm the department's PIO. I was busy. My phone was ringing off the hook about this event, even though it was a police event. Um, probably about a half hour into the incident, I, I was able to make a quick phone call and have one of our city PIOs start to take over social media for us. We all have access to each other's accounts so they could, they could help with that. And then the phone call started to diminish a little bit. We did have some people show up. Cops, by the way, showed up from all over the place, guys in shorts and tank tops with their vests on and their, their rifles. That's their problem, not ours. We had fire people show up. We had instructors that were in their full uniform because they were teaching a clinical at a hospital for a paramedic school that day. They showed up and they went to work. They never checked in with us. We need to know who's there for accountability purposes. Let them know what their mission is, what channel we're on, where to park, all that other stuff. Those are things that we need to make sure we tell our people moving forward. Bringing in the emergency manager would have been very important. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your agencies or your municipalities have emergency management staff. This incident was huge. The incidents afterwards were huge. Uh, getting the emergency manager involved from the very beginning is something that's very important. Something that we found after the fact, um, if I put out a tweet at 2 o'clock that says there's this shooting going on at Douglas High School, and then I put one out at 3 o'clock that says this is the update, somebody's going to retweet that 2 o'clock tweet. And guess what? That's what they think is going on right now. When you put out things like that during an ongoing event, put the time in front of, this, of what you're, you're posting so people know I'm reading a tweet that I just saw on somebody's timeline, but it's really 10 tweets ago. It was sent out like four hours ago. We learned that too because the news would say, I just saw a tweet about this. No, that was like a long time ago. Uh, this last one makes me laugh. We got asked by the state to send in our 214s. Okay. They're still not done, and they're probably not going to be. Um, I know why they need them. I know why they want them. Um, but like the lady said, ain't nobody got time for that. Um, you know, we sent out some additional units, unified command post, mental health command post. One of the things that was noted in here, our fire chief came up with this. You know, after we realized we're going to be here for a while, we should have had a tow truck come out with explicit instructions that said, if a car's in the way, running, locked, I don't care, drag it off the road because there, that would have been very helpful there. Patient tracking, again, we did not use MCI tags because it was so fluid. We missed the first couple that came out. We didn't want to try to confuse anything. But what we did do, 
when we had chiefs from other agencies, especially EMS supervisors from other agencies asking how they can help, we sent them to the hospitals to track on the receiving end. So the tracking was done, it just wasn't done with the normal MetTag process. Our shooter went to the same hospital where there was alive and deceased patients and their parents. Problem, anyone? Yeah. Um, it wasn't intentional, it was just, hey, this kid you know, got tackled to the ground and he needs to get treated at the hospital. We should have taken him to like somewhere on the other side of the county. Again, uh, you know, looking back now, that would have been a good idea. Agencies should be familiar with hospitals that they don't normally transport to. We had agencies come to us to transport patients that have never been in our city, and they had never been to the hospitals that we were telling them to transport patients to. They were driving around the hospital, like, where the hell is the damn ER entrance? And then when they got there, what's the code to get in the door? Once they got in the door, where the hell do we go? Where's the trauma bay? So just familiarization with your crews after the fact, or before the fact in the future. Our city, every station, was on this call. We had other 911 calls come in. We had a one-year-old that drank a half a gallon of bleach in the middle of this incident. That patient was transported in a fire truck against state statute. I'm okay with that. We were worried about the incident. We did have a off-duty shift supervisor that came in to cover the city, but at the time that call was going out, there was no units in the city. We needed to worry about still running regular 911 calls in our jurisdiction. Um, that baby that drank the bleach needed to go to the hospital ASAP, and they threw him in the back of the fire truck, and uh, along they went. Social media stuff's very important. Um, our fire prevention folks, our community risk reduction folks did a great job. They had to go into the school and help silence and disassemble some of the alarm systems in the 1200 building to allow the investigators to do their job, crawling over deceased kids in the hallway. Everybody needed to be taken care of that day. We need to meet with our school board people more often. We need to meet with our school resource people more often. Access issues. We don't have keys, other than the universal key in our fire trucks, but we don't have keys to some of these gates and some of these other things in the school. We need to have meetings with our other agencies that we work with often. The Broward Sheriff's Office, we work well with them but we hadn't pre-planned. When we did our training for active shooter, BSO wasn't there because they have their own training division and they did their own thing. It would have been better to work with them. So when students evacuated the school, they were ordered to drop their book bags in the middle of the street so they could be searched by the bomb dog. One kid didn't hear that until he got about 100 yards away, so he dropped his backpack in the middle of the street 100 yards away. That now became an explosive device call that the bomb squad had to come out and investigate. So all of this stuff was going on at the same time that bloody patients were being brought out to the treatment area. 33 seconds, within 33 seconds of the shooting, our units were dispatched. We knew this event was taking place very shortly after the incident started. We had units on the way very shortly into the incident. During the one hour, 31 minutes of this initial operation, again, we talked about why it took that long. That's where we got our times from, because we're not just gonna make some stuff up. 19 patients were treated for a variety of injuries, most being serious or critical in nature. Those are not the 17, excuse me, Two of the 17 deceased are counted in this 19 number here on the screen because there were, there were a couple of patients that were transported that maybe shouldn't have been. And, and I will never second, get that, second guess that ever. For example, first patient that was brought out, the command post was right next to the treatment area. Um, the crew was brought this patient by school staff in a golf cart. And the rescue lieutenant looked up at me and said, this kid's a seven. 
in our jurisdiction of Signal 7 is deceased. And uh, he said, what do you want me to do with him? Put him in your truck. But it's an MCI. We shouldn't put, put the kid in your truck. I own that. We didn't need that truck at that very moment, and that was okay. The alternative was to put him in the street with a yellow blanket over him with thousands of kids walking by because they just happen to be walking by our command post in our treatment area. That's not what we normally supposed to do, but we have to just live by our decisions. Granted, a very short time after that, we moved, we set up a temporary demort area and, and moved him from the truck and were able to use that truck. But there were decisions made that day that may not have been within the norm, but they were made that way because they needed to be made that way. Of the 19 patients treated, 18 of them were gunshot wounds. Some of them, I don't know if you saw the news, but uh, one of the patients, her name's Maddie. Uh, Maddie was shot four times in the torso by an AR-15, also multiple other shots in other areas of her body, and she's alive today. I don't know how the hell she did it. Our police officers, SWAT medics, SWAT officers from other departments saved a lot of lives that day. They put tourniquets, some patients had multiple tourniquets. I think one patient had three tourniquets on three limbs. They put hemostatic agents and chest seals on patients. The trauma surgeon at the hospital said, had those not been done, there would have been a lot more fatalities in 17. These guys did amazing work that day. Let's learn from this. Uh, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come speak with you today. Um, I know that the focus is on mental wellness, um, but we thought it was important to give you like some operational stuff as well about this call. Hopefully it will help. Again, not if, but when this unfortunate incident happens in the future. So thank you guys. That's all for this episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this behavioral health series and to watch the videos. It can be helpful with the PowerPoint slides to follow along with. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. And if you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me directly. Until then, take care of each other. We'll talk to you soon.